Welcome to the Death and Cowbells episode of Three Chords and the Truth. I'm Timothy. I teach and write about apologetics. And when I was a toddler, we lived on a farm and my mother attached a cowbell to my belt so she could hear where I was when I was playing outside. I'm Garrick, and the first time I ever thought I was going to meet the Grim Reaper, I was surrounded by a bunch of 8th grade boys in the Pacific Ocean. Well, one of the most difficult dilemmas in the entire Bible is, how did Judas Iscariot die? According to Matthew, Judas hanged himself, and the priests purchased the field where he had died for 30 pieces of silver. But according to the book of Acts, Judas fell headfirst in a field, and his intestines burst open. So which is it? And what does this mean for how we read the rest of the New Testament? Well, today in the Three Chords segment of the program, Dr. Robert Plummer joins us to discuss the fate of Judas Iscariot. And then in the Truth segment, Garrick and I take a look at Don't Fear the Reaper by the Blue Oyster Cult. If you want to learn more about why the Bible can be trusted, take a look at the book In Defense of the Bible, edited by Stephen Cowan and Terry Wilder from our friends at B&H Academic. That's In Defense of the Bible from B&H Academic. You can download a sample chapter today at bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the apologetics podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Well, today we're looking at something that seems like a contradiction in the Bible between the account of the death of Judas in the book of Acts and the account of the death of Judas in the gospel according to Matthew. And so first, let's simply read the texts about the death of Judas from the Acts of the Apostles and from the gospel according to Matthew. So according to Matthew chapter 27, the chief priests took the silver and said, it's not permitted to put it into the temple treasury since it's blood money. They conferred together and bought the potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called blood field to this day. But then according to Acts chapter 1, it says, now this man, that's Judas, acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field is called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. So, According to Matthew, it was the priests who bought the field where Judas bought the farm. But according to the book of Acts, Judas bought it himself. According to Matthew, Judas hanged himself. In Acts, he falls headfirst and his intestines burst out. So let's start by asking the obvious question. How did Judas really die? Did he fall? Was he hanged? Was it something else? How did Judas actually die? Yes. I've looked at this text in class with students. Sometimes I'll say, has anyone in here ever seen someone fall headlong and see their stomach burst open and their guts fall out? And I have yet to have a student who's seen that happen. You're going to be so shocked the day that someone answers yes. <laughs> it's going to mess up your whole lesson after that. <laughs> it might happen someday. But, but the point is, 
it would be an unusual circumstance that would cause that to happen. You'd have to fall from a very high level. You'd have to fall with a body that's somehow weakened and more inclined to break open. Of course, these are issues that, that reconciling Matthew and the book of Acts are things that Christians have talked about for centuries. And I think one of the best suggestions is that this field, and you can still visit this today, I think there's like a Eastern Orthodox a monastery or something there. there. There is still a graveyard there. It's in the Hinnom Valley. It's on the sort of the southwest side of, of Jerusalem. It's very steep cliffs there, 20, 30 feet high. I've walked through there. I've had kids throw rocks at me, actually, as I was going through there and running away from them. And these cliffs have trees growing out of them. It's not hard to imagine someone hanging themselves in this situation off this cliff and then either then or later the the rope breaking and the person falling and and maybe a partly decomposed body breaking open and the guts spilling out what's a interesting question maybe after that is why have Matthew and Luke chosen to give the details slightly differently what is their theological intent in their partial reporting of this historical incident so what do you think are the reasons that Acts and Matthew report this somewhat differently? Luke writing the book of Acts, Matthew writing the book of Matthew. Why do they emphasize different things? Well, I think we can't be certain about that. I mean, both of them present Judah's death as a shameful, horrible thing. But possibly, you think Matthew is written to Jews. We agree about that. Scholars agree. And it has a very Jewish flavor. And I wonder if Matthew intends his audience to hear the, you know, the well-known curse in Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. This idea that here is Judas, someone who really deserved the curse of God for betraying the Christ, betraying Jesus to, to, to the authorities. Of course, Paul picks up on this text, Deuteronomy 21 and Galatians 3, and says that Christ, in being hung on a tree, he took the curse of God for us, and it's because of that we're, we're no longer under the curse of the law. Now, Luke, it's a little bit harder to say, isn't it? But if you do a quick search of, of the Greek word for guts, splachna, you'll find that in Second Maccabees, right, this is a part of the Apocrypha, works written by Jews between the Old and New Testament, there's a description of the death of Antiochus Epiphanes, and it's, it's that his guts burst open and people are looking at him, it's shameful, it's disgusting. And so maybe this idea of your guts spilling out in a public way is, is a way of just connecting Judas with other well-known public shameful deaths of horrible cursed people. Luke is a historian. He knows his history well. He writes in a very septuagintal style. Possibly he's intentional in alluding to that, or maybe it's just more he's highlighting what in that culture and time would have been seen by most people as as an indication of God's curse being upon this person. Dr. Palmer, what about the seemingly differing accounts of the purchase of the field of blood? Who exactly bought the field? Yeah, well, I think it, this is a case where it's always good to go back and read the text very carefully. And if you look at Matthew, it's very explicit. He's thrown the silver into the temple. They take the silver and they purchase. The word used there in the Greek is agorazo. They purchase the field. Now, in Acts, it's very different. It doesn't say, you know, Judas had a bag of money. He went and bought a field. You know, it, it just has this very generic word for getting or acquiring. And I'm not sure what it English translation you read at the beginning, but I think it's accurate in that it translated it acquired. So it's almost like Luke saying, you know what he got for his unrighteous wages? He got a field that he was buried in. That's what he got. And so 
even the choice of the verb there, I think, is a subtle indication that Luke, Luke knows he didn't physically, literally purchase the field. I think it's also interesting, probably I'm not supposed to raise additional issues <laughs> as your guest, but it's interesting why it, both authors speak of it being called the blood field. In Matthew, it seems it's because it's the blood money, right? But in Acts, it seems like it's somehow connected with his bloody body being spilled there. And as I was thinking about that, expecting you might ask me about it, I was thinking about the pattern we see in the Old Testament where there's often a place that's named something or someone is given a name, and multiple times things happen that confirm that name and sometimes tweak it a little bit, whether it's Jacob grasping the heel of his brother's birth, but then later deceiving him multiple times, or whether it's uh, the, the city name of Beersheba, you know, there's just these kind of historical recapitulations that sees God as sovereign over history, and, and, and names are sig- often seen as significant, and things happen many times to people or to places to confirm the meaning of those names. Well, there's actually another account of the death of Judas outside of the New Testament, and it comes from an individual named Papias. Now, Papias, for those of you who don't know, he was a leader in the second century church. He lived in the city of Hierapolis, which was near a crossroads in Asia Minor. And Papias collected stories about Jesus. In fact, according to some reports, these books have been lost, but he had collected five books of different stories and sayings about Jesus. And this report about Judas doesn't come to us directly from Papias. Rather, it comes to us through someone named Apollinaris of Laodicea, who was a pastor in the fourth century, and he presents this as having come from Papias. Now, according to this account from Apollinaris, it says Judas did not die by hanging, but lived having been cut down before choking. Now, let's pause just for a moment there and notice that Apollinaris in the fourth century even was very careful not not to contradict Matthew's account, and he says that Judas did hang himself, but did not succeed in killing himself. And what I think is important there is, to your point earlier, Rob, that uh, what this reveals is that the early church was very concerned with reconciling the multiple accounts. Even if they reconciled them differently, they were very concerned with that. You see that in Apollinaris in the fourth century. But he goes on to say, and this the Acts of the Apostles makes clear, that falling headlong, his middle burst and his bowels poured forth, Papias, the disciple of John, records this most clearly, saying this, Judas lived his career in the world as an enormous example of impiety. He was so swollen in flesh that he could not pass where a wagon could pass. Having been crushed by a wagon, his intestines poured out. So apparently, according to this later account, Judas was cut down and then somehow run over by a wagon. Now, should these words that are ascribed to Papias, should they have any impact on the way that we approach this apparent discrepancy today? Well, I I think you've already alluded to the way I feel about it in the sense that we see a reverent approach to Scripture. We see one that is looking to see how apparent discrepancies are resolved, that they're in the end not contradictory. I believe Augustine was one of the first people to suggest that he fell after being hanged and his body burst open even at that point. So we're talking about roughly the same time, maybe. So yeah, 
people who say, well, in the in church history, this idea of inerrancy, the idea that the Bible is without error, that's a modern, new scholastic, Reformation belief. That's completely wrong. Anyone who's read the Fathers, who's, you know, you read Theodore Mopsuetzia, his commentary on John, you see how he deals with differences in the synoptics. There was a reverence, there was a belief that this was the Word of God, and there was, there was not, in the end, contradiction. However, anybody who's lived life knows that when two or three people talk about about the same event, they emphasize different things. And that that's part of the truthfulness. When we get the scripture, there's this feel of this is eyewitness account. This is not someone photocopying three accounts of the same thing, but we're getting reliable but different details. Even when a car, I was, I give an example in class where my wife's minivan broke down at Walgreens. And then I tell it from several different angles. You say, I say, my car broke down at Walgreens. I'm sorry, I was late for that meeting. And, and someone could come back and be like, wait, that's that is your wife's car. Well, I'm like, what's well, my car too? I mean, we own all things. My name's actually on the title rather than hers. Well, it's you said car, but it's a minivan. I'm like, well, in colloquial usage, to say car is acceptable for any vehicle when you're just talking quickly about it breaking down, you know, and showing that we we afford each other kind of a, a trust. We we trust other people when they're telling us eyewitness accounts. We we're not. Attacking them and doubting everything and looking for these apparent discrepancies. And if you come to the Word of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you have this, I think, a proclivity. A, you lean towards it. You desire. You know it's. You desire it. You. It speaks truth to your soul. But when you approach it, you you come looking to see how the pieces fit together, rather than assuming that they contradict each other. Which is one of the things that's most important is that often a standard of exactness is expected from scripture that we would never expect from any other literary unit, so to speak. Totally. And we have to make certain that we are understanding scripture as literature. It is certainly more than literature, but it is no less than literature. And so we afford it those same considerations that we would give to two different biographies of the same person, of a president or of some other public figure. We would afford that a certain level of recognition that these are going to tell the same story from different angles. And simply because they emphasize different things or tell it in a slightly different way does not necessarily mean that they are contradicting one another. And we should bring the same attitude to our reading of the scriptures. And that's so important and so crucial for us to understand. Yeah, I completely agree. And and I do think then, rather than asking the question about, well, did this really happen? Is this true? Why is, is Which one is correct? We can ask that next deeper question. Why did the biblical author choose, inspired by the Spirit, to present the details in this way? What does that teach us? What nuance are we getting from this text about God, about how he's worked in the world, about what he's calling us to do? And it leads us into a deeper place of understanding and reverence, I think. Shifting gears a little bit, but not entirely unrelated, to develop this understanding, to to understand God's word better, to be able to have some of these conversations and figure out some of these nuances of of language and, and whatnot. While it's not required, it's not absolutely necessary, it is certainly helpful to know the languages behind our English translation uh, of the Bible. And so a lot of folks, Dr. Plummer, are going to know you, best know you as the voice behind 
daily dose of Greek. Could you, for those who aren't familiar with this, could you describe what daily dose of Greek is for our listeners? Yes, thanks for asking. Yeah, a few years ago, I guess it's probably about four years ago, I, I sort of midlife crisis think, what, what do I need to accomplish in life with the years that God has given me? And one of the frustrations I've had is seeing students get to a high level of ability in the Greek text, and then they go off to a busy pastorate, busy missionary field, busy teachers, and, and that knowledge erodes. But with technology now, with being able to send out screencasts, with Twitter, Facebook, these sorts of feeds, it's never been easier to place in front of people every day just two to three minutes of reading through a Greek or Hebrew text. And and with a screencast, we can you see the, the text in front of you being marked up, and we, we speak over it. It has a very live feel to it. Everyone has two or three minutes. I mean, my goodness, you can watch it while you're brushing your teeth. And so it's just, so the, the, the key purpose of it, quite honestly, is just to keep pastors and other other serious Christians reading their Greek New Testaments, Hebrew Old Testaments for their life going gradually, we pray, deeper and deeper. It, it also has a secondary purpose of just helping people who've never read Greek or Hebrew before get into it. It's not the primary purpose. It's not a full online class like we have in our online program here at Southern Seminary, but there are some little basic intro lectures available on both the Hebrew, Daily Dose of Hebrew, and Daily Dose of Greek websites. And I mean, this last year I had this guy email me have the most amazing notes people send me. He said, I'm a construction worker. I've always wanted to learn to read the Greek New Testament. I've been working on your website for three years, and now I can sit down and read portions of it. I'm just so excited. And so that makes me so delighted. I mean, that's I'm so fulfilling to to help people learn to read the Bible in Greek or Hebrew. And you don't have to, I mean, we have great translations. We don't have to read it in Greek or Hebrew, but it's never been easier to learn Greek or Hebrew. And I think Christians, just like we talked about earlier today about being able to look up the words and say, oh, that's kataomai, and that's agrazo, like to, to not just rely on an English translation, but be able to read the actual literal words the apostles wrote and spoke is exciting, I think, for most Christians. Well, now we come to the most dangerous part of our podcast, and that is the Infinity Gauntlet. And as always, we remind you that this is the very exact infinity gauntlet that Thanos himself wore when he wiped out half of humanity, and therefore we have to be very careful. But once again, Garrick has daringly reached within the infinity gauntlet to bring out one of the great questions of humankind. That's right. Not a replica at all. Do not try this at home, folks. And here is the question that the infinity gauntlet has given us today. Which one is better and why? The Dark Knight trilogy or the Captain America trilogy? I noticed that you didn't put the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy in here because, again, you were tired of them winning probably all the time. Lord of the Rings, it wins every time it shows up <laughs> in this podcast. We've had, It has complete victory over all other universes. But uh, So right now, we're, as always, bringing two different universes into conflict with one another. This time, it is DC and Marvel. The DC trilogy, there's the Dark Knight trilogy consisting of Batman Begins, Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Is that better or worse than the Captain America trilogy made up of Captain America, the first Avenger, and followed by Winter Soldier and then by Civil War? Which one of these is the better trilogy? Yeah, this is a really hard question. I feel like you you can't 
answer incorrectly on this because I, I got to think that everyone's going to have their own measurement of what what makes something a better trilogy. And so not being the movie critic that you are, Timothy, I would answer this kind of from the heart, right? My, my gut feeling is right now, if I were going to sit down and watch these three movies in a row, which one would I go to? And for me, it's the Dark Knight trilogy. That's the one that I would sit down right now, probably have to do it by myself because my wife's not interested and it, I think it would traumatize my son at this age. But that's what I want to close myself into a theater room and, and just kind of binge watch. What about you, Rob? Well, I, I'm embarrassed to say, clearly I'm not among equals here. I, I, I sit in the corner because I haven't watched the Captain America trilogy. That's embarrassing to, you probably wouldn't have had me on here if I, if I admitted that beforehand. But I have seen The Dark Knight. I saw, I think it was like free on Netflix sometime in the last couple of years. So I would choose that because that's the only one I've seen. <laughs> you're, you're too busy making all those Greek videos. Exactly. That's why you haven't seen. And, and I, li- I like the, you know, the kind of the tortured sort of is he good is he bad he's a complex character i don't i don't know about that in the other movie so i actually have to agree on dark knight trilogy and i'm a big fan of the captain america trilogy it is my favorite it's, one it's your favorite I was out of all of the marvel movies and yet the reason i would say that the dark knight trilogy triumphs in this is that second movie in which in the joker you see pure and authentic evil in a way that I rarely, if ever, I can't think of any other example that would even rival this, pure evil uh, embodied. In that one, it's even deeper at some level than the evil I think that's portrayed in Lord of the Rings. Because in Lord of the Rings, it's a disembodied evil. But in the Joker, you see a pure embodied evil. You see what Augustine, I think, would rightly recognize is not possible in real life because Augustine points out very clearly in City of God that evil can never exist in its pure state. In other words, evil is only a distortion of good. There's some good motivation, something good that is distorted. But somehow in the Joker, they have been able to portray someone who is pure evil, and it's something that that I don't think can exist in the real world. But because of that, it is my favorite. It, it is also one of those that I make sure that I do not watch more than once a year. I'll tell our kids we will only watch this once a year because I think if you ever got to the point that the evil of the Joker doesn't haunt you, that you would have gotten to an unhealthy psychological place at that point. It is haunting evil. And so I would say the Dark Knight trilogy is a triumph that is unparalleled in superhero universes and in superhero movies. Yeah, and they're not even paying us to say that, but maybe they will after (laughs) this episode. But if they do want to pay us to say that, we will say it every episode. (laughs) That's right. Rock and roll, it's one of the greatest inventions in human history and one of the supreme expressions of common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with the summer of love and ended with grunge. And that's why, each week, in the second half of this program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for divine truth in classic rock.
I'm Garrett from the 1980s. And I'm Timothy from the 1970s. And welcome to the Death and Cowbells episode of Three Chords and the Truth. And so let's think about what are their rock and roll songs about death? Can you think of any rock and roll songs about death? Yeah, I can. Um, what comes to mind is another song by Bob Dylan that has been performed better by almost everyone else that's tried. His 1974 Knocking on Heaven's Door is a, a favorite of mine, especially when Guns N' Roses uh, performs it. Fade to Black by Metallica, 10 years later in 1984. And then one that most people don't think of when we think about songs about death, and this might surprise you to to know this is one of my favorite, but The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot, uh, also in 1976, two years before I was even alive. In a musty old hall in Detroit, they prayed in the Maritime Sailors Cathedral. The church bell chimed till it rang 29 times for each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Then in the mid-1970s, we've got several songs about death. The Rolling Stones, Dancing with Mr. D. We've got Led Zeppelin, In My Time of Dying. And it's in this context that Blue Oyster Cult releases in 1976 the song Don't Fear the Reaper. Let's think of the way that most people have first heard this song, Don't Fear the Reaper, which is in a certain Saturday Night Live skit in which many amazing things happen. Many amazing things. Uh, this is not the first time that I ever heard the song, but it holds a near and dear place in, in my heart. There's just something about Will Ferrell in a midriff that is just hilarious and Christopher Walken just just nails Bruce Dickinson. It's so yeah. It's it's one of the more famous recent you know modern day Saturday Night Live skits, and uh, so good that we we felt like we had to watch it again one more time before we recorded this episode. Well, when I first heard the song "Don't Fear the Reaper," as with many songs that we talk about on here, it was certainly not on Saturday Night Live. I'd never heard of Saturday Night Live. It was not even on the radio, but it was an anti-rock music seminar in a fundamentalist church, and that's where I heard all of my early rock and roll. Shocker! <laughs> At that point, we were introduced to the Blue Oyster Cult as a satanic band, and this song was said to be a call for teenagers to commit suicide. Now, we got to remember that it is true and tragically true that between 1970 and 1980, suicide rates among teenagers had gone up about 40%. Many, many people saw rock music as part of the problem. But this particular song, though it is a dark song about death, is not a song about suicide primarily. But many people believed that it was. And as late as 2004, Blue Oyster Cult was scheduled to perform in Milford, Connecticut. And religious leaders protested them performing. And what they were going to perform at the event was, wait for it, the city's Oyster Festival. <laughs> and so Milford's Oyster Festival. Why not? <laughs> and so Blue Oyster Cult was not? going to be performing at their 30th annual Oyster Festival in August of 2004, and people protested. Now, let's give it up for the city of Milford because they went ahead and had Blue Oyster Cult perform anyway. And I looked it up, and this year they are still doing the Milford Oyster Festival, the 45th annual in this year in August. We've got at least two listeners 
from Connecticut. And so shout out to those two listeners who are near Milford, Connecticut, and to your Oyster Festival Any there. controversial guests this year in the Oyster Festival? I don't know. Last year, it was Eddie Money that performed at it. And so, he's still around. <laughs> I know. It's like he's still alive, uh, or at wow. least was last year. Okay. Uh, anyway, but I don't know who's performing at it well, this fantastic. year. So that's what happened yeah. in 2004. Well, so let's talk first about the band Blue Oyster Cult. Began in 1967 as Soft White Underbelly and wisely renamed to uh, Blue Oyster Cult with much like Motorhead with this meaningless umlaut over the O that uh, no one pronounced. I mean, if, if, you, if you recognized the umlaut, it should be Blue Easter cult, and uh, no one wants to say that, so there's, there's that. So the name Blue Oyster Cult came from actually somebody named Sandy Perlman. So let's give a little bit of the background of the band. They were performing as Soft White Underbelly. Basically, we're just a band playing biker bars in Long Island. That's all they were really doing. And a producer named Sandy Perlman decided he was going to make them into the American version of Black Sabbath. Now, Sandy Perlman was imaginative. He was brilliant. He ended up before the end of his life as a professor at McGill University. And he had written this epic science fiction poem. And the Blue Oyster Cult was one of the factions in his science fiction poem that he wrote. And this poetry provided many of the lyrics for the early Blue Oyster Cult albums. And much of what he wrote dabbled in the occult, dabbled in satanic symbolism. And that got combined with these really mysterious and creative album covers for the early Blue Oyster Cult. But the problem was, it was all Sandy Perlman at this point. This band, Blue Oyster Cult, pretty much lacked any real talent. <laughs> it really did. Black Sabbath, if you just look at Black Sabbath, I mean, the dark themes in Black Sabbath's music are really, really believable. They are when convincing you hear, yeah, when they when perform you, them. Even. When you hear the song Black Sabbath, for example, it feels dark and evil. I don't know if they were really dark and evil. I'm just saying you feel it. You sense that. Feather and black, which But for Blue Oyster Cult, it was really all a show. They were all just trying to act all evil, but really it was just a show for them. They were a lot more like Spinal Tap from the movie This Is Spinal Tap than they were like Black Sabbath. And there should only be one Spinal Tap, so we don't, <laughs> so we don't need another one. What about the song, this specific song, which uh, that we're looking at today, which doesn't technically qualify as a one-hit wonder, but it comes really close. It does come really close. It's certainly their best-known song, their biggest hit, Rolling Stone Song of the Year in 1976. But this particular song comes about when the guitarist, Buck Dharma, who if there was, that was not his real name, that was what he went by. So awesome. <laughs> it is amazing. Buck Dharma. And so he went by this fake stage name. And if there was anyone in the band who could have really become a talented musician, it really was him. He wouldn't have made 
it as a heavy metal, dark, hard rock artist, but he actually was a, a pretty good guitar player. But he was diagnosed with a heart condition and he began to contemplate an early death. And this song really emerged as his way of facing death and of coping with this news that he might be facing an early death due to this uh, heart defect that he had. And here in the song we're talking about today, Don't Fear the Reaper, uh, the song about death, some of the lyrics go like this. All our times have come here, but now they're gone. Seasons don't fear the reaper, nor do the wind, the sun, or the rain. We can be like they are. Come on, baby. Don't fear the reaper. We'll be able to fly. Don't fear the reaper. I I got a fever. I got a (laughs) And the only prescription (laughs) is is more cowbell. And so this song does go on to talk about how death placed Romeo and Juliet together for eternity. And in this song also, Buck Dharma made a guess, which turned out to be wrong, that 40,000 people died every day. Well, in the mid-1970s, it was closer to 140,000 people died every day. That's what you get for writing a song before the invention of the interwebs. And so there's really not an afterlife in this song other than something that is very vague, shadowy, ethereal. Romeo and Juliet together for eternity. But if there is any afterlife at all, it is something that's much more that Greek concept of the afterlife, of a vague, shadowy afterlife. And of course, the reaper in this song is the grim reaper, who is a a universal symbol of death that actually in some forms predates Christianity. But the imagery we know and we identify with the grim reaper is actually that robe and that scythe. That actually comes from the time of the Black Plague in the 14th century. And really, what I see in Don't Fear the Reaper is it is a song about facing death without reference to God. It is a secular perspective on death, we might say. Yeah, and, and following the, the celebration of Easter, which has occurred recently, this is the opposite message that most believers would have heard this weekend. So what does this song reveal about death? Well, I think what it really says to us and what it really reveals is that without God, apart from God, there are only two ways to respond to death. There really are only two ways. One of them, I would say, is to fight against the reaper. And that is this idea of preserving your life at all costs, saying, I will stay alive as long as I can, no matter what. That's fight against the reaper. And when I think of that, I think of a a book recently that came out called Swimming in a Sea of Death. And the author's mother in this particular book. She had been diagnosed with an aggressive blood cancer, but she refused to accept the inevitability that the reaper was coming for her. And so she would try to use all these and follow all of these different ways of fighting against the cancer just to keep her alive, though it was in great pain and a low quality of life. She tried to fight against death, thinking that if I can get one more year, then that will be the year that a cure is discovered and I'll live then. And and so she was seeking to fight death at all costs. And what her son said, reflecting back on that, is he said it was life that she was desperate for, not truth. 
And it's so easy for us to have this attitude today because so many things are curable. The reason people die of cancer is because they didn't die earlier of influenza and of bacterial infections and things that we often just view as a passing inconvenience today. But in earlier generations, people would have died of those things. And people even try to fight against death after they're dead by making preparations that almost deny the reality of death. I think of the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Los Angeles where the plots are priced on the basis of the view. Now let's pause for a moment and yes. recognize yes. you get a high priced plot because you've got a great view, but you're dead. <laughs> you're not using that view right. at that point. But all of these are examples of fighting against the reaper, we and, might say. And I see in that an aspect that I agree with in a sense that if we view the Christian view of death is that it is an enemy, right? First Corinthians fifteen twenty six, and so, in a sense, it is something to fight against. It uh, is in one sense, but, but at as, the, yeah, yeah, at the same said, time, without God, without God, all we can do is fight for our own life. So that's one of the options I think, from a secular perspective, is simply to fight against the reaper. The other one, the one that is represented in this song, is don't fear the reaper, which is this idea that death is simply a part of life. Accept it. Don't fear it. But the problem is that if we have that attitude, I'm just not going to fear death because it's just part of life. It's just the end of life. If death is the end and we'll all inevitably die and be forgotten, what meaning does our life have? If we really have this attitude of don't fear the reaper, what meaning does our life really have? And as I think of that, I think about of Albert Camus in The Death of Sisyphus. And here's what he says, once you recognize the inevitability of death, he says, once you say, I'm not going to fear the reaper, it's just inevitable, it's coming, you have two options. And he says, the number one option is you can commit suicide so that at the very least you can take control of your death. That's his first option that he gives. And I don't think that the anti-rock crusaders were correct, that don't fear the reaper, was really a call to commit suicide. But I actually do think that was one aspect of what Dharma was considering. When he references Romeo and Juliet, is should this be the way I end it? Now, he ends up landing in a different place, but I think that's part of his consideration at that time. And so Albert Camus says, first off, if you recognize the inevitability of death, it's just going to happen. One option is commit suicide so that at least you have control of your death. The second option is live as though your life matters even though it really doesn't. That's the best that Camus can come up with, is live like your life matters, even though it really doesn't. So how should Christians hear this song? Well, I think one of the things that we ought to remember is that in the Christian tradition, there is a deep and beautiful tradition of how to face death well. There was an entire genre of literature at one point that was called Memento Mori, remembering death. There was a yearning to develop ars moriendi, that is the art of dying well. And so I think one of the things that we need to recognize is we have a deep and beautiful Christian tradition that opens the door for viewing death in a healthy and God-honoring way. And yet, in truth, 
I actually see the same patterns in the lives of Christians about death as I do in the world. Those same two things I mentioned earlier, either fight the reaper or don't fear the reaper. When I think of fight the reaper, that idea of being willing to do anything to be able to keep someone alive. There's that tendency we have that we want to hold on to this life at all costs. And and that even happens after somebody is dead. I've seen a, a trend recently of at funerals, not referring to a funeral as a memorial service or a funeral, but as a celebration of life. And I'm thinking, No, this is not a celebration of life. A birthday is a celebration of life. This is a recognition of death. And death is an awful intruder that was not part of God's original design for humanity. That sin has brought about death. But as Christians, what we can do is recognize the awfulness of death. We don't have to fight against it in the same way that the world does, thinking that this is all I've got is this life. But we can recognize the awfulness of it, but in some sense I would say we can stare death down (laughs) because in Jesus we recognize that death is not the final word. We don't have to fight death so desperately. We can receive it, not because we think it is good, we recognize it is an enemy, but we can receive it because it is not the final word. I read an article in the last year from a Roman Catholic professor uh, in Detroit who, since I have known him, has lost a son and in in this last few years actually also lost a granddaughter, a toddler. And he wrote a couple of articles basically about his reflection on all of the problems and the questions that come up during this. And and part of that, he he says, "I'm, I'm able to deal with these type of tragedies because of some truths that I know. And one, we've already mentioned that death is an enemy, and that second, we can't find in death, especially the death of little children, and he says of this child, you know, my granddaughter, an ultimate meaning or purpose, because the meaning or purpose isn't in the death, but instead, as believers, the meaning and the purpose that we look forward to is the resurrection. Right. And when we have this idea of, I've just got to fight against the reaper, we're not admitting that reality that this is not the final word. There is a better life, Mm. the real life Mm. that is yet to come. And so I see Christians still having that fight against the reaper, or they go on the other hand and have this idea of don't fear the reaper. Just it's a natural part of life. Just accept it as a natural part of life. And yet I look at John chapter 11, and I think of the moment when Jesus confronted the death of his friend Lazarus. He didn't say, don't fear the reaper. Death is just a natural part of life. He wept. He was angry. When he faced his own death on the cross, Jesus didn't say, don't fear the reaper. What Jesus said is, if there is any way to let this cup pass from me, let it pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And so we as Christians have to recognize that we do live in this paradox. And in this paradox, death is an enemy. And the defeat of death is guaranteed, and yet death's defeat is not yet complete. That's what we have to recognize. I can stare death down without saying it's just a natural part of life. It's just a good natural thing. It isn't. It's an unnatural intruder into life. But I can stare death down down knowing that it is not the final word. And we need to be reminded of that. When Paul said, oh, death, where is your sting? He wasn't talking about the way we experience life now. Right now, the sting of death is very real. 
He was talking about a time in the future when God will make all things right and new. And that allows us to simultaneously despise death and yet be able to face death with a boldness because death cannot speak the final word over us. The final word has been spoken, and that final word is Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think about Matt McCullough in his book, Remember Death. Much of what we're talking about today, we're drawing from Matt McCullough's excellent book, Remember Death. And here's the way he put it in summary. He said, if death isn't actually a problem, Jesus isn't much of a solution. We have to recognize death is an enemy. It is a problem. And honestly, part of our problem is that up until the 19th and 20th centuries, death was a public event that people experienced in community. People died in their homes. People wanted to be with them as they died. But all that has changed. Up until the 20th century, death was public and sex was private. And now sex is public and death is private. That's a massive shift. It is. It is a sociological shift that we need to recognize. And as medicine has become more capable of prolonging life, death has become isolated into hospitals and nursing homes, and because of that, we are often able to isolate ourselves from the true awfulness of death. That the best way for us to enjoy our present lives is to get honest about our deaths and to be able to think about the different things in our lives of things that are bothering us is to think about in light of my death, does this really matter? And how do I live these few short decades I have on earth in a way that truly sees death as an enemy and Jesus as a solution, as the solution? And much like suffering, death is something that we must, in Jesus' words, participate in to be united with him. Right. It comes together. It comes together. We can't it is a package deal in which to participate in Christ is to participate in his suffering, ultimately in death, but knowing that whatever happens in our death, he has already forged the way, he's paved the way, he is a pioneer even in death and in resurrection ahead of us. And so when we look at the song, listen to the song, Don't Fear the Reaper, what should we do with this song? Well, recognize that don't fear the reaper is one option for the person without God. It is one option for the person without God. To recognize that death is inevitable, so just embrace it. But that's not what we are called to declare as believers in Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth. Sky like vultures.